This Advent season, as you've either, again, joined us here in person or maybe joined us online, we are talking about some of the most core longings of our culture right now. So we're talking about the longing for justice, the longing for freedom, the longing to be satisfied, the longing for a hope, a peace. And on the one hand, it's been my goal to actually affirm these longings rather than confront them. So when, when we look at culture at large and there is a pervasive longing for peace, for hope, for justice. We don't come as Christians and say, well, you guys need to stop hoping for that. You just need to love God. You know, I want to affirm that these are good longings, that these are at least shadows or reflections of something that God has imprinted on your heart. But on the other hand, at the same time, what I'm trying to do is show you that nothing in our culture, nothing in our world can ultimately satisfy these core longings. Now, we get temporary satisfaction and we get partial satisfaction, but I mean in the deepest, fullest, most comprehensive sense of having these longings satisfied, I've been pointing you to Jesus Christ and telling you that instead of giving up on the longing for justice and just saying, we're never going to have that, are we? We're never going to have peace in our time. And just giving up in despair, we need to take those hopes to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you satisfy these longings of my heart? And this morning we come to the longing for identity. In a world where smartphones and social media are ubiquitous, I think there has never been a time where people experience a more pervasive longing for identity or for an identity than right now. So that's our point one, the longing of our culture. If you don't know, what is an identity, okay? An identity is simply, and I'll say it several different ways, an identity is your sense of self or self-worth. It is your sense of, I feel safe, I feel secure, I feel satisfied if these certain things are true. Or you might say, this is what makes me feel unique. You know, not just as part of the human race, but this is what sets me apart. This is how I identify myself, where I feel significant. I feel important. I feel, and I'll use a series of words this morning, I feel recognized, affirmed, validated, accepted in my identity. In his book, The Truest Thing About You, David Lomas said that how we perceive ourselves is often made up of three things, what you do, what you have, and what you desire. So in addition to just looking at yourself and saying, well, this is my biology, and that's a huge part of my identity, I see these other layers of things that I do have and desire. So for example, if I just talk about myself, and I want you each to think about yourselves for a moment, you know, there, there are many obvious layers about my identity. I could say, you know, I'm a, a white male. I am an American citizen. I am a son I am a brother. I'm a husband. I'm a father. You know, we move into the vocational realm as a huge part of our identity. I can say, I'm a pastor. I'm a small business owner. I enjoy certain things. I love sports. I'm a Broncos fan. I'm a Colorado Avalanche fan. You know, I love all things Denver. Okay? So I could go on and on about all these different layers of my identity. And I would say all of these things on some level are important. They're real. They're true. But here's a very important diagnostic question that Lomas gives us. What identity in your life currently provides the most powerful dose of self-worth? 
So as you're filtering through all those layers of things that are either true about you or you at least wish that they were true about you or you want them to be true about you or you identify yourself a certain way, which of those many different layers you would say, this really, when it boils down to it, is where I find my sense of self-worth. And I've shared this many times before, but in traditional types of cultures, typically that self-affirmation That sense of self or self-worth comes from doing your duty, from accepting an assigned role and just performing well. You know, if you're a wife, that means certain things. If you're a mother, that means certain things. A husband, a father, a business owner, a slave, you know, in different cultures, that typically means do your duty and do it well. Build your thing that you build and do it better than everyone else who's doing it. And then you have this strong hit of That's me. I'm worth something. I'm valuable. My life has meaning. And in progressive cultures, there is much less of an emphasis on doing your duty, performing your role. And there's more this idea of expressive individualism, of autonomy, like what we talked about last week, self-rule. And the idea there is, you know, you do you, you do something unique, you do something special. And when you do that special thing, and you really set yourself apart as a this, well, then the rest of culture is supposed to come around you and say, wow, you're really something. You've made something of yourself. And this is a longing that all of us have deep down. We don't want to go through life just thinking like, well, yeah, I'm human. Uh, You know, I know a lot of other important humans. They seem to have their stuff together. I don't. doesn't matter. I'm okay. No, we, we need to feel, we need to know My life has value. My life has meaning. My life has purpose. I long for that. You long for that. Tim Keller uses the important term, who is your decisive validator? Okay, so out of all of the voices, you step out of these doors or even in church, right? You hear all these different voices and there's all this different noise of people saying certain things about you. They're criticizing you. They're critiquing you. They're taking your words out of context and they're offended by something or they're supporting you. They're affirming you. They're encouraging you. But out of all those different voices of the who's and what's, there's this decisive validator, Tim Keller says, that that is the voice that you're like, if this person or this group of people, if they say that I'm doing okay, that would mean everything to me. And it could be a who, like an expert in your field. You know, as different ones of you are either students or you are professional something, right? There may be someone at the top of your field that you would think if that person recognized me and said I was doing good work, that would mean everything to my identity. Or maybe it's someone like a parent or a teacher or a mentor or a boss. If that person affirmed me, that would mean everything. Or maybe it's a certain peer group. Everything from very traditional to very progressive. You know, if if people recognize me as being very woke, that would mean everything. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm over here. And if this peer group in society said that I was something, then I'm something. Or maybe it's social media influencers, you know, and you're, you're doing your thing online and you're kind of creating this persona, this identity online. By the way, this is an interesting thing that um, many millennials and Gen Z in particular have like burner accounts of identity on social media where they're creating an alternate persona and almost like test driving. Like, what if I were this person? I was really into like fashion or I was really into art or really into whatever. 
And media, social media influencers started being like, wow, this is really good stuff. You'd be like, yeah. Okay, now it's not always a who. Sometimes it's a what that is your decisive validator. Sometimes it's like, if I achieved or if I accomplished this certain thing, like I've set this goal for myself and if I could achieve my own goal and arrive at this level of my job or accomplish this big project, then I would know that I have worth. Or if I get accepted by this certain group, or if I get accepted into this certain thing, then I would know that I've really arrived. And I want to run quickly to point two, which is simply, I want to point out a couple problems with our longing for identity. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with an identity. You have one. We all have one. And, and there's nothing wrong with desiring to know my life has meaning, my life has purpose, because it does in God. But here are a couple problems. Number one, our longing for an identity is often feelings dominated. Okay, feelings dominated. And I'm not here to say that feelings are bad. Okay, the, like anger, joy, fear, anxiety, different feelings, different reactions you have to different, different things. Some of you actually would do well to get more in touch with your feelings because they're like dashboard indicator lights where God's trying to tell you something about something going on in your life, something going on in your mind, something going on in your heart. And you need to listen to those feelings of like, why do I feel so angry when people say stuff like this? Why do I feel so good when people don't say stuff like this other thing, okay? So the problem is not your feelings per se. Your feelings can be good. Your feelings can be neutral. Your feelings can be bad. The problem that I'm addressing here is when our identities are completely shaped and then controlled by nothing more than subjective feelings as opposed to objective reality. Okay, so this week in a, uh, in a European publication, there was a major headline article about the Canadian actor Elliot Page, who until a week or two ago was Ellen Page. And the article is basically saying, this is Elliot's right to say, I am male, not female anymore. And the article was going on to say, if he wants to be called male, then everyone else must agree. And the, the tone of this article was like, there's something heinously wrong with you if you don't agree that someone born a biological female is actually now a male simply because this person says, I'm a male. And I want to just pause here for a second and say, the church of Jesus Christ should be a place of welcome for people who are going through this very type of thing. Okay, so if you just immediately feel judgment in your heart or hatred or condemnation, as opposed to caring and consideration and compassion, then this is a moment of repentance because we are called to be caring and compassionate. But part of that consideration and compassion is to also have convic convictions about the truth and say, okay, what, what corresponds with God's reality? Okay, by what metric is a male a female or vice versa? I mean, is, is that biology? Is that genetics? Is that science? I mean, we have all these scientists coming and saying, like, it is, it is established science that you wear one of these and we get through this thing in a couple weeks, but the problem is people won't wear these, right? That's established science. But now in a very serious decision around identity, can a person be both male and female or change that? And by what metric can we change? 
And, and the article itself, which was defending this decision, was just simply saying, well, it's, it's the actor's feeling about him or herself, and we should all agree that that feeling is now the thing that trumps everything else, okay? Now, it's tragic enough that there are a number of individuals who experience dysphoria, frustration, anxiety, distress about who am I? So much so that they completely reinvent themselves in a number of different ways. But it's even scarier that we have a whole society that actually encourages and elevates subjective feelings over objective truth. That's really dangerous. You know, many of you probably know the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes. So these two shysters come to town, I think it was two, and they basically said, we can make the most beautiful patterns of fabric with the most glorious colors for the king. And he is worthy of the most beautiful garments that anyone could ever make. And they said, now here, here's the catch. If you're a fool, if you're a moron, you're not going to be able to see the beauty, the radiance of what we're doing in our craft. And they sit there and they start, you know, weaving on these looms. And everyone that's watching is like, I can see the loom and I can see you doing this activity, but I don't see the thread. I don't see a fabric being formed. But they're like, but I guess that means I'm a fool. So I can't, I can't, I'm just going to play along. I pretend like I can see it because I'm not a fool. And it goes on and on and on. And then everyone's like, finally, there's this robe for the king. And they're like, what do you think? And everyone's looking at it and they just see a pair of hands going like this. And they're like, I don't, I don't see anything that that person's holding up, but I don't want to be thought a fool. So I, yeah, oh, wow. That's the most beautiful you know, robe for a king I've ever seen before. The king himself comes and he's gonna put this beautiful robe on. He's gonna go out and appear before his people. And the king himself walks in. And he's like, man, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see any fabric at all, let alone a robe. But he goes through this charade of putting it on and going out in front of his people with this new clothing, right? And all the people are just trying to hold back the gasps but no one wants to be thought a fool. And so they all say, what, what beautiful, radiant clothing the king. We've never seen such intricate patterns and such beautiful colors. And finally, there's this one little boy. And I don't know why I always hear him with like a British accent or anything. But, he, but this one little boy just shouts out, but he hasn't got anything on. And he says what everyone else is thinking. And finally, other people are like, yeah, he hasn't got anything on. He hasn't got anything on. He has, and, and the charade comes crumbling down. And I want to say this, friends. This is a picture not of Elliot Page or a particular niche of society. This is a picture of all of us. When we listen to a worldly culture, we experience a disconnect between what God says, this is objectively true of your identity. And we say, yeah, but I feel like I get my identity and my worth and my significance in this stuff, God. And, and there's a frustration, there's an anxiety, there's a contradiction. And we all walk around with some of this tension. And, and the point here is simply, we will never be freer or more satisfied than simply living in the fullness of God's design for our identity. But I don't feel like this is true. That's where we say, okay, stop. Come back to the word of God. God, help me believe I am who you say I am. 
I don't want to be feelings-driven, feelings-just-dominated, okay? Second problem is fragility. Our identities are alarmingly dependent upon the affirmation and acceptance of others. You ever feel that going through life? I need affirmation right now. I need someone to just say they accept me or I'm going to go bonkers because I, I don't measure up in these ways that I want to measure up for myself or society says I doesn't measure up. And without deep convictions about your identity in Christ, without being anchored to something steadfast and solid and immovable where God says this is true of you, we are so easily manipulated. We are so easily controlled by other people who just come and say, well, I'm offended that you believe that way or you look that way or that you think that's your identity or they ridicule you or they say things like in, like in, the, in the Hans Christian Andersen tale, like, oh, I used, to, I used to not see that before. I was enlightened too. And then you feel like, well, I don't wanna be a fool. And I think our ever-changing identity is just shifting from one thing to another. I just picture like a human in bumper cars where it's just like you're drifting and bam, someone slams into you and they're like, that, that doesn't look right. You're, you're not worth anything unless you agree with this. And so you, you're, then you're catapulted over this way and boom, and then you're spinning around and bam. And, some, you know, and just that's what I mean by fragility is like all these other people with all their other opinions and perspectives and offenses are then able to control you. Fragility is also seen in how thin-skinned and easily offended much of our culture is. Do you know why? Because no longer can we say, I have a secure identity in Christ or in something that I just have firm convictions about. You disagree with me, and that's fine. You have a difference of opinion. Or even you have a difference of conviction. You have a different belief. But instead, what we do is because we have so identified ourselves with all these layers of our identity, and we find our sense of worth in that, that when someone attacks something we believe or something we just have an opinion about, we feel like I've been attacked. And we're immediately on the defensive because we're fragile about these identities. And then thirdly, the third problem here is just the problem of failure. Because what happens when we don't get that approval of our decisive validator? When we say it would mean everything to me if this person or this group just accepted me and affirmed me and we don't get it. Can you relate? And it's devastating. And you're like, I guess I'm just pond scum. I guess I'll just go eat worms because this is what I was living for and these people don't see it. They don't recognize it. I guess I'm nothing. But let's flip that around. What if you did get that affirmation and that praise and that acceptance from that group and you got it and you felt really good for a little while, but then you realized this isn't really changing me. I still have the same doubts. I still have the same fears. I still have the same anxieties. I thought that these people with their acceptance, with their words of affirmation, with their validation would, would fix me and I'm still a mess. Did any of you see the story this week in the Wall Street Journal about the billionaire Zappos co-founder. All the success, all the affirmation, all the acceptance, all the validation in the world for this guy. Playboy lifestyle, whatever he wanted. He bought all these friendships of like, come work for me. I'll pay you double whatever you're making. Just come live with me and live my lifestyle of just 
constant, endless spending on every fun thing we can possibly think of. And this article, a secular article, says apparently all that success and affirmation and acceptance did nothing to deal with this guy's anxieties and self-doubts and demons. So listen, if you're ultimately frustrated whether you fail at your goals or achieve your goals, then change your goals. And that's why I think I need to bring our identity back to Advent this morning. So this takes us to the ancient longing. In the Old Testament, if you don't know, it was obviously more of a traditional culture. It was an honor-shame culture back then, most of it. It was not progressive in the sense that really nobody was back then saying as a large cultural phenomenon, hey, go, go do your thing. Expressive individualism. It was like, no, do your duty, do your role, obey the rules, And so talking about the Jewish people who were the people of God, they were often like, yeah, times are good. Why? Because we're God's chosen people. And we're pretty good at it. So times are good. And you read this, you know, especially in the periods of the kings and the judges. And they're very self-reliant. They're very proud. They're very like, yeah, we got this. We're good. We're awesome. God loves us because, I mean, who wouldn't? Look at us. But then bad times come and they're like, God, where are you? I thought we were your special people. Why did bad stuff happen to God's special people? And they were so confused about their identity back then. They were arrogant and self-righteous one moment and then angry at God and in complete despair the next moment. And so what do they do? They put up walls. And they're like, let's double down on everything that's wrong. Let's put up walls, even literal walls. And instead of being what God called Abraham, the first Hebrew, to be, which is a light to the nations of the world, instead of going and fulfilling their calling, they're like, no, 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 let's let's double down and find our identity in our ethnicity and in our Torah, the law of God, and in the temple, and in Jerusalem, and in these walls, and in this place. And, and, and let's, let's not welcome these other cultures in because we're better than them. And God actually had to disabuse them of this notion. You may know these verses, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But it was not because you are more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Do you hear what he's saying? He's like, "You're you're not all that. Why does God love you? Why did God choose you? Simply because of grace. Simply because God loves you and chose you. And it's kind of a tautology, but he's like, God loves you and chose you because God loves you and chose you. Free grace. And in the midst of this roller coaster of racism and ethnocentricity and nationalism and pride and then humiliation and disgrace, many of the Old Testament saints began crying out for this enduring identity which was theirs by grace. So you have a text like the one that we read this morning in our call to worship in Hosea, where it's like, you are, you are not my people, but when Messiah comes, I will call you my people. I will transform, I will redeem your identity. Or Isaiah 62 that I directed you to earlier. I might have said 61, but 62, one through four. You shall no more be termed forsaken, 
and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land shall be called married, for the Lord delights in you. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. So I want you to hear in these verses like this that the advent is not simply that God would come and do something for us, like give us justice, give us hope, give us peace, but it's actually that he would form in us our truest identity, an identity that's grounded in the reality of who he is and what he's done for us and what he will do for us. And by the way, before I move on to these final couple points that apply this to to all of us, in the Old Testament still, do you know who else is longing for an identity in Messiah? There's many of the Gentiles. Because again, they're, they're the outsiders and they're looking in and many of them are like, but I believe Yahweh. He's my God. And the Jews said, well, too bad. You can't come worship with us. You can't be a part of our community. Okay, we literally put up walls that say upon penalty of death, you can't get any closer to the center of worship in Jerusalem. You can't. And you hear this in Isaiah 56, where Messiah says, my salvation will come soon. You're waiting for it. You're longing for it. I'm coming soon. And then he says this, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them, that is, I will give Gentiles an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And this brings us to our fulfillment in Jesus. And first of all, I just want you to think about the miracle that Jesus came. So you have the eternal son of God, eternal spirit, the creator of the universe. And this miracle at Christmas is that he actually identified with humanity by literally becoming one of us, born of the Virgin Mary, okay? He humbled himself. He identified with us as a real human being. In the very first chapter of John's gospel, as we're meeting this character, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Messiah, this man named Andrew brings his brother, Simon, because both of them have been hearing about the teachings of this Jesus. They've been hearing about the miracles and they're both thinking in the backs of their minds, this doesn't square with what we have believed the Messiah would be, but what if this is the true Messiah? We've got to go check it out for ourselves. And I love this because in, in John chapter one, verse 42, it says, Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. And Matthew 16 gives us a little bit more color about this where he goes on, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And do you see what Jesus is doing? He's renaming him. He's saying, this was your identity. Simon, this messed up fisherman from Galilee. But I say, Your enduring objective identity because of my work in your life is you are Peter, you are rock. 
And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But what, what I want you to hear in this same chapter, John 1, is that Jesus is doing the same thing to each of us. He's renaming us. He's giving us a true identity. Verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is what Jesus is doing. We have this longing, God, I need to know that my life matters. I need to know that I have worth. And he's like, how about this? By my free grace, I adopt you into my family and whatever else can be said about you that's true. You are unchangeably a child of God. Loved, accepted, honored. So the already and the not yet. I want you to understand already it is true that the deepest, truest level of your identity is received, not achieved. And every culture around the world for all time has always been saying your identity is achieved, okay? A traditional culture will say you have to achieve the identity by hard work, by doing your role, by performing your duty, by keeping the rules. The progressive says you achieve your identity through expressive individualism. You do all these crazy, exciting things. Um, By the way, we have to agree with the crazy, exciting things that you do, and I posted this article online this week, and I said I would refer to this, that uh, society's lining up behind Elliot Page and like, yeah, you do you. That's so exciting. That's so courageous. You're amazing. You're awesome. And a, a formerly openly practicing gay man who also worked in Hollywood, but was introduced to Jesus Christ and decided, I'm going to end my relationship with all these other men, and I'm going to live a celibate life to honor Jesus Christ He's like, I've been nothing but attacked. No one celebrated me for changing my identity to align with what I believed was true. No one. Everyone attacked me. So I want you to understand, I mean, progressive culture, as much as we love and celebrate certain things about it, this is a problem. That we would say, you be whoever you want to be and we will support you because it's up to you, but it's not really true. Because there's a narrative that needs to be told by progressive culture. But Jesus isn't saying, hey, there's a narrative that needs to be told. Get in line. He's actually saying, whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will truly find life. And what's interesting, when Jesus says, lose your life, it's not lose your bios. It's not what he said. In other words, he's not saying you die physically. He says, you lose your Suke, we would say psyche or self. And what Jesus' call is, is you lose, you die to your self-made identity, your culturally mandated identity. And as you die to that and say, that doesn't mean everything to me anymore. What Jesus says is true about me. That's what means everything to me. He says, then you come alive and you experience what is truly life. So your identity is received as a free gift of God's grace, not achieved by your performance, not achieved by how expressively individualistic you are in all the ways that you're supposed to be. But I want you to understand the not yet is that you are not yet fully redeemed in the image of God. You're being remade. So in other words, God says at the very beginning, I made Adam and Eve, I made mankind in my image. Now sin has wrecked that, it has deeply marred that. But the reason we still have longings for justice, longings for freedoms, longings for shalom, 
longings for an identity is because we still have these vestiges of the image of God. And Jesus is coming and has come and will come again to renew that image so we actually look like him. So friends, if you're going through something I said earlier, not making fun of anybody, but saying compassionately, if you're one of those people that you, you feel that dysphoria, you feel that constant, relentless anxiety of like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable in my own skin. I don't know who I am. Maybe I should remake myself. If you're feeling that tension, understand it's in part because Jesus hasn't returned for the second time. And we look forward to that hope when he comes and says, that identity I gave you through the cross, through the resurrection, now I'm coming to perfect it in you, to bring it to completion in you. Okay, so just a moment on each of these. So what? What do you do with this? Well, first of all, I think the first practical thing we do just day after day, moment by moment, is that you die to that self-made, culturally assigned identity. You know, and culture is going along and every day they're saying, find yourself, find yourself, find yourself, find yourself, find yourself. And it's all about, okay, what's this persona? What's this identity that I'm supposed to find? And, and, and where do I find it? Where do I discover such a thing as important as my identity? And along with saying, find it, they say, fashion it. If you don't like who God made you to be, just say you're something completely different. Fashion a new identity that you do feel comfortable with. And it's all about self-discovery and self-expression. And Jesus comes along with the gospel and he says, the question is not who am I? The question is who am I in Christ? Because that's the only thing that matters. Who am I in Christ? And instead of finding ourselves and fashioning ourselves, Jesus says, lose yourself. In other words, a life of self-denial. That Jesus, when I see, when I see in my own heart, it's cropping up again. I need deeply people's affirmation and acceptance. I need their criticism to stop, you know? Stop saying you're offended. Stop correcting me. Then we say, no, 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 something's wrong here. Who am I in Christ? Then secondly, practically, let the truest thing about you be the most important So I'm dying to one thing, but simultaneously I'm raising this other flag to the highest flag on my flagpole and saying, if Jesus says by his free grace and through faith alone, I am his child eternally, unshakably loved and accepted forever, that's the truest thing about me. I'm going to make that the most important thing about me. Okay, I want you to understand, though, that when Jesus saves you, he's not making this army of homogenous droids. So to become a Christian, a lot of people are like, so what happens to my ethnicity? What happens to my race? What happens to my vocation? What happens to all these layers of my identity that are important to me? What happens to them? And the answer is that Jesus doesn't eradicate them. He redeems them and he relativizes them. So, you know, I'm still going to be a white guy, but God can redeem everything that's broken about my race about my gender. I'm still going to be a pastor, but God can come into that and redeem that and make me the kind of shepherd that he wants me to be. Does that make sense? And, and relativize means simply God is not getting rid of these other things, but he's saying relative to who you are in me, these things are not as important. Finally, live in the reality of who God says you are. 
Just live in that reality. And I encourage every one of you, make it a regular habit of yours to go to Scripture and say, who does God say I am? His child, forgiven, liberated, adopted, blessed in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places. I could go on and on. And God says, because of Jesus, these things are objectively true of you. David Lomas says, you have worth because you are made in the image of God. You matter to God. No matter your past, no matter your proclivities, your habits, your flaws, your temptations, your orientation, you have worth. You are not what you do. Your self-worth does not depend on what you have. You are not a prisoner of what you desire. No, what the scriptures make clear is this. Humans created by God are a finite, visible picture of the infinite, invisible God. That's who you are. Okay? So respect yourself. Yes. But you respect yourself because you see this amazing work that God is at work in you. And you respect other people because you see them as image bearers. And even when they're doing things that you strongly disagree with and you're like, this is not good for you in the end. And I'm not saying that because I'm judging you or I hate you or I'm better than you. I'm saying that because I've I've counseled many people like you who years later are filled with self-hatred because they made a wreck of something as deeply important to them as their identity. So deliberately choose to see yourself and deliberately choose to see others the way God sees us. Let Jesus define and deeply satisfy the deepest longing of your heart for a true and unshakable identity.